1: I'm really pleased to say that joining Tom and I here in New York City is Alison Williams, our senior analyst here at Bloomberg Intelligence, to run us through some of the numbers from JP Morgan. Alison, aggressively going through the press release. So let's talk about it. The top line for you, Alison, this morning.
2: So I think the top line is the bottom line, the 18 percent return on tangible equity, uh, which to us is extremely impressive. JP Morgan is already executing at the top end of peers, and that shows that they continue to do so. Looking at uh, the guidance, I would say what's most positive is the expense guide, which looks like it's coming in a little bit lower. Um, So again, it's a lot of uh, data out there that we need to sift through, but um, on the surface, that's positive. On the net interest margin or net interest income is similar to last quarter. Um, however, recall that intra-quarter they did sort of guide down. Um, but again, I I think I wouldn't make too much of it, too much out of it, one way or the other. They were saying 57 plus or minus. Then they said, oh, maybe maybe it might be. Um, you know, closer to 57. I think in general, uh, interest rates is is sort of the one situation that matters most to banks, but where we'll probably get the least clarity this quarter just because of the
1: dynamics driving that are really things beyond the bank's control. Let's talk about net interest income just briefly then. The stock is firmer in the pre-market by around about two percentage points. Net interest income, less than $57.5 billion. Is there a read across for the other big banks on Wall Street or is it still too early to tell, Alison?
2: I think it's a little too early to tell. We haven't sort of gone through to see um, what's happening with mix. And I think that's could be the one area where we get positively surprised and we could see an offset to some of the margin pressures. So if we looked at some of the weekly data that comes out, consumer loan growth um, has been doing better. That's higher margin. And to the extent that you have that influence in your portfolio, um, that's obviously helpful to net interest income. The other thing, fixed income trading, uh, which is uh, actually more important for Citi and Goldman. It's a bigger share of their earnings. We'll hear from them shortly. But that coming in, uh, much better than estimates.
0: We welcome all of you worldwide and coast to coast. It's a too big to fail day for me and John Farrow. And you can do that with Fred Cannon of KBW, of course, part of Stifle as well, with decades of experience, including being on the inside uh, at Bank of America years ago. Fred Cannon, these banks can't acquire other banks. They got deposit issues in that. They're just gonna organically grow. Do you see the too big to fails growing at nominal GDP, less than nominal GDP, or are they all blended gonna get JP Morgan like seven, eight, 9% per year growth?
3: Well, I think in terms of bottom, top line growth, slightly slower than nominal GDP. The small banks and fintechs are going to pick up a bit of market share in terms of asset growth. So that keeps them down. And you're seeing that in the numbers. That said, bottom line growth, how do you get there? Operating leverage, keep the expenses down, and buybacks. That's the key. I, mean, I,
0: I thought uh, Mr. Diamond's comments, and of course, there'll be much more on this, John, as well. But Allison, I, I mean, the comments were all upbeat, upbeat, upbeat. You know, the usual boilerplate an investor relations guy would put together for Mr. Diamond. <laughs> Where's the gloom here? I'm in a gloomy mood today. Is there any gloom in the J.P. Morgan story? I can't find it.
2: So not so far, but... Um, Fred, you see any gloom? I don't see a lot
1: of gloom in this, but we wouldn't expect it at this point in time. John, you see any glue? The stock's up nineteen, twenty percent through, <laughs> yeah. through twenty nineteen. The way people talk about the banks, Fred, is oh, as if terrible. they've had a terrible year. <sighs> What's going on? How do you reconcile the sentiment around some of these big names with the performance in the equity market? Well, I
3: mean, year-to-date is a tough one because, remember, we had such a
1: bad That applies quarter. to the whole index. That applies to the whole index. That applies to the whole of the S&P 500. You look at it on the year, we've done nothing. But what a difference a month makes. <laughs> try to say, of course, if you, if but, Alison, let's talk about this. If one, you ask people then... about how stocks have done this year, they feel like stocks have done well. You ask them how banks have done this year, they feel like banks haven't performed. Right. So what's happening is that the banks have made progress, especially
3: on the bottom line, and the multiples have held. And that's allowed for this growth. <clears throat> We're still trading at 15-year lows on, on multiple on, on PE ratios for the banks. And so the fact is that they're bouncing along a bottom on valuation and continuing to make some progress in terms of the bottom line. And that, that has allowed some reasonable uh Money to be made in the bank stocks this year.
1: Just in terms of the base effects, Alison, looking back 12 months for this quarter, is that why we see some of the outperformance and FIG relative to equities? Is there a big base effect at play here?
2: So that'll be the story next quarter, I think. Uh, the story this quarter is, though, that equity comparisons are easing. So be yeah. a really strong half that sort of faded in 3Q. But I think for FIC, and again, we're going to want to dig into the details, but September was a really strong month for credit issuance. It was a strong month yeah. for credit trading, especially in high yield. We know that's more profitable. Um, you know, we had um, good, good spreads. We had good bond, good bond price movement. So I think that might be what you're seeing play into FIC. Of course, the, the question is, with FIC is going to be, is that yeah. sustainable?
0: Allison, I have a question, and it's a light question, but it's also serious as well. I looked through quickly. I sped read through all their stuff. I don't see WeWork mentioned. And, you know this is in the headlines and i would give us the that. i know i agree but for our listening audience give us the amount of we work is it like literally a drop in a lake
2: i think you know a we, WeWork. we work i think is, is a broader you know people might say it perhaps a reputational issue it's not something that you know perhaps there might have been a, a mark in, in the portfolio there's a big headline number about how much Um, They're invested, but that's across their private equity funds. And they do have a a very big portfolio. The question, I think, is more, um, you know, I guess softer in terms of, you know, what are they doing from here? And so I'm not necessarily saying that there's a reputational hit. I'm saying that, you know, people are going to want to know, like, what is what's J.P. Morgan doing um, from here? They're going to just want to hear a little bit and the, a little bit more about that, and that was really something for for the, I think the call all along. It's not necessarily something you would see in the, in the press release unless there was some outsized
1: hit. Well, looking ahead, Fred, I just wonder from your perspective, the hangover from the WeWork saga for IPOs for the back end of this year for investment bank fees. How do you think we're set up for the back half of this year, the back end of this year?
3: I'm pretty cautious on that. I mean what we're seeing is these unicorns in the just cannot get their private market valuations in the public market. I mean we works you think is a one off, but it's continual. In other words, we've we've seen this story before of these unicorns having these huge private market valuations and they just don't come through. Yeah. And that's a a tough story to to build up your IPO pipeline with.
1: Just a final word on that, Alison, how difficult Q four might be because of some of the big dramas, the big sagas that we've had with some of these high profile IPOs.
2: So, so I'll say two words in t- for earnings, easy comps. So that's what we'll be talking yeah. about in January. But I think that you know the IPO question I think is a is a bigger question. Sort of I think going into twenty twenty, and I think what's also interesting is that this while you have sort of we were canceling their deal, you have Peloton. Um, you know, disappointing. You also have all these conferences going on, and Morgan Stanley and Goldman getting into these conferences, where the private investors are saying that they're not getting enough money. So I think it's sort of it, and and perhaps talking about circumventing the banks. And is there a way for them to sort of get more of the economics? Which, in a way, I think highlights sort of the role of the intermediary, right? Some people think that they're overpriced. Some think they're overpriced, underpriced. Yeah. So. That's, that is something we're going to look, look to hear more about on the call.
0: To two of you, thank you so much. Elsa thank you, guys. Ken, thank you so much for being with KBW before they write up their banking combine, writes up reports on four banks. Today. Somebody who's run out of ammunition is the wee company. We did we did you read the whole
1: prospectus, right John? I didn't, but I know someone who did.
0: We are down to 15% coupon with what's called an equity kicker in the trade to guarantee, I say, a 30% return. This is like, you know, this this transaction they're trying to structure here. So there's
1: two options, either the SoftBank bailout or ultimately JP Morgan leading a group of bankers and securing some debt for them. $5 JP billion,
0: Morgan's tarnishing their reputation including 15 percent including coupon. a
1: two billion dollar note, payment in kind note, fifteen percent coupon. Almost double, Tom, what they paid last year. Unreal.
0: Shanali Basic has never written that large a coupon <laughs> or that large an equity kicker. You talk to adults. What do the adults of Wall Street say <laughs> when they see 15% coupon and equ- equity kicker on warrants promising 30% return?
4: It's a tough environment to get that done. Obviously, we were... Right, ever, ever, and let alone in the market that we're in right now. They're talking to everybody and their mother to try to get this done. But whether they can or not, if they do, it's a real but Hail Mary. The mathematics
0: <laughs> here is what's called a cram down, which is if you do a coupon and you do that, you cram down to value or it kicks right over to the new investors. Mm-hmm. How many billion is the is the diminishment here? to get this thing done.
4: I mean, they're trying to get 2 billion of this done, right? But I mean, everybody that I talk to is saying, oh, it's, it's, it's a tough one, it's a stretch, and you know, it's, yeah, a reading, lot, it's John, still a, a lot of money.
0: 70 billion and 47 billion. What's
1: the thing worth right now? I have no idea. Less
4: than 10, probably. 2.2 2 billion? It's a
1: distressed asset now. That's Ugh. what it is. Oh, yeah. Uh, Shanali, mm-hmm. who's making the decision at WeWork?
4: Oh, well, they have two new CEOs now, right? And so Adam Newman is not the one here saying that. Oh, we prefer yeah. SoftBank or we don't. It's the two new CEOs. I've got to say something. So they they are supposed to run out of cash pretty soon, right? With perhaps weeks. by next month. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, remember, they're restructuring. Restructuring is expensive, right? They have to fire people, which is expensive. They have to get sell assets, which is expensive. They have to try to get out of some leases, which is expensive. So they have to take they have to spend money before they could even ever think about making money. And so if you're somebody who's betting on them now through, even with the 15% coupon, at what point they actually turn around is a really tough question.
1: Two options were on the table. Mm-hmm. And it looks like from my reporting this morning, they're exploring, exploring the JP Morgan lifeline mm-hmm. over the SoftBank lifeline. Why? Do we have a why at this point?
4: So if you think about it, if you take the debt, Right? You still have a more institutional base. If you get more equity from SoftBank, SoftBank owns you, right? And it's risky. You're sharing all your income with SoftBank rather than paying them down a coupon. Carry on, Shinali. <laughs> oh, well, so that's the real problem with um, you know, taking the SoftBank money. Remember, SoftBank already owns almost 40% of the company. So it's a real tough one when um, you know they already practically own you, (laughs) and they own more than Newman himself. But what about?
1: I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah, like you just—you t- just did. They got—I well,
0: was busy. You know, like, you know, the fan mail is coming in, and I just had to talk to Michael from—from from, um, uh, I don't know up north. Um, I, very, very quickly here, they need Kendall Roy. I mean, I mean the answer is they need somebody like Kendra who is going to fly in and save this thing. All la succession.
4: Oh, I wish Kendall Roy could be the person. <laughs> no, no
1: spoilers. No spoilers. I
4: didn't watch Sunday nights.
1: No spoilers. We're in the new episode. No, just no spoilers. I'm You're like you did this with Game of Thrones. Don't ruin this for people.
0: Oh, it's there's no difference. Succession is the same as Game of Thrones. Seriously, who is the white knight to come in? Buffett's not going to come in. (laughs) Buffett works on a seven or eight percent coupon. Here we're at a 15 percent coupon. Is this like Steven Schwartzman comes in and Blackstone? No.
4: Well, yeah, even, even, they might even be messy for Steven Schwartzman, right? You got to think like a, somebody who likes distress a little bit more than that, like an Apollo, but I doubt Apollo. they would do that. Okay. <laughs> uh, what,
0: what do the adults at Apollo do <laughs> right. when they see what Jillian Tan and our team wrote about?
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't. You're talking about Steve Schwartzman, for example, very similar to Apollo. Steve has spoken about WeWork publicly before. He said that he sh- doesn't understand where the economics came from in the first place. By the way, over the weekend, I had bankers involved in all of this deal, uh, all of these deals, saying, oh, we, we probably should have seen the writing on the wall a while ago. It's a little far gone. Okay. That's the problem, Tom.
0: Shanali Basik, thank you thank so you, much. We WeWork and WeWork. We thank you all for listening on The We Company. There have been any number of stories over the last 48 hours, really Turkey and Syria front and center, and, of course, all the bank earnings as well in the financial world. And Brexit has become a state of confusion. Therese Raphael writes brilliantly on this and particularly writes on a relative basis and has a wonderful essay on what the United Kingdom will look like after Brexit or non-Brexit or no deal or deal Brexit, whatever the eight flavors are. And what fascinates me, Teresa, in your essay is the Europeans are sort of afraid of what a separate United Kingdom will be like. Why is Paris, Berlin, and Brussels afraid of what this independent, newly independent United Kingdom will look like?
5: Right. So this is one of the uh, fears that you hear from Angela Merkel in Germany, also from Macron, that an independent UK will look a little bit like uh, a Singapore on the, the Thames River. It will cut taxes, slash regulations, open uh, you know open itself to the world's <clears throat> banks and businesses and you know actually become um, you know s- such a, a formidable competitor to the EU that yeah. it, that Brexit uh, you know encourages other EU countries to <clears throat> maybe try to join Britain's orbit and so you know one of the balances that has to be struck in Europe is they you know, now I think very much would like to be rid of the UK. Uh, it's the, the dra- Brexit negotiations have dragged on and on, but they want to do it in a way that that uh, is seen to hurt and doesn't give the UK uh, some trade advantage that they will then come to regret.
0: Okay, but the feasibility of this—I mean, there's been Norway on the Thames and Singapore <laughs> on the Thames and Toronto on the Thames and the rest of it. I don't hear anybody except the wishful hopeful actually linking the culture, the ethos, the geography of Singapore, with what we see at a more northern latitude.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the people, you know, worrying most about uh, Singapore and the Thames really haven't spent a lot of time in the UK. You just can't compare a one party uh, city state of six and a yeah. half million to a country as large and geographically diverse and politically pluralistic as the United yeah. Kingdom. And, you know, the main, um, the reality of british politics now is it's going in the other direction even the conservatives traditionally the party of you know right. fiscal prudence and low spending and low taxation are right. turning it on when it comes to offering voters much enhanced public services, more spending. They still want to keep tax rates low, but they don't have that much to cut, really in the realm of corporate taxes. I skim, you know,
0: I looked at the photos of the queen and Prince Charles and all that. (laughs) I didn't see Boy George there, but you know, I I, I looked for us at the, the speech and I, you know, read through some of the stuff and I get that, but how much the queen is supposed to voice what the prime minister wants. How much of it is like actual policy, and how much of it was if I'm elected free beer? Yeah, I mean it is uh, obviously he the the government
5: writes the Queen's speech. This one was uh, you know it was a bit of a joke because the government is meant to be setting out its agenda, but it doesn't have a majority. It has a majority of minus 45 so it's not a legislative agenda it's effectively an election manifesto uh so it is a lot of you know sort of free here yeah. there was lots of talk about you know, social care and other spending programs it's basically telling voters if you elect us this is what we'll you know this is what we'll do um and so it was very controversial as well well um,
0: you're a great student of the press there was was the feeling the queen was put in a compromising position
5: Yeah, there was a lot of uh, scrutiny over the decision to prorogue or suspend parliament even for this short period and have a queen speech it was very performative it doesn't serve any uh you know any practical function but you know we are now in the realm of you know the ridiculous uh yeah. i think in the view of many people and this was just par for this new course Nothing. that uh, you know that everyone is is on
0: well thank you Truth revel with a really good essay folks sing singapore and the thames for those of you in newport rhode island it's Singapore and Thames, but (laughs) I don't understand the Thames, Thames. Singapore and Thames. I'll try to get that on Twitter. Bloomberg Opinion, Teresa Raphael uh, with us this morning. Let us pause. And do this over the next good half hour with Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital Markets, who said two years ago, I know they're going nowhere, but at some point they'll move. And for patient investors, the bank's moved. Gerard, I looked at Goldman Sachs today, 10-year track record, 3.6% per year. I looked at J.P. Morgan, 10.x% per year. Does J.P. Morgan succeed because of their best practices or because they avoid worst practices?
6: Tom, that's a really good point because you put your thumb on it with J.P. Morgan. They know how to execute. The investment banking, commercial banking businesses are generally commodity businesses. There's no patents or proprietary you know, products that really can distinguish one bank from another bank. It's all about execution. And that's what J.P. Morgan did again this quarter. And they're demonstrating that they're really starting to lead the pack, that they're able to deliver better than expected results because they're executing, whereas the other banks don't seem to be executing as well in some cases.
0: What does executing mean? You've only been doing this for 400 years. You were (laughs) now when Hamilton was arguing before Andrew Jackson about there being too many banks. What does executing actually
6: mean? It really comes down to looking at the playbook and having a map to drive the revenues and control your expenses. So it means making sure people are following up on phone calls with clients. After a client meeting, it means that, you know, opening branches, you know, when you're building out new branches, as J.P. Morgan is doing in Boston and Washington, D.C., for example, opening them on time, having the layouts the way they wanted to. It's all these little things that really add up.
0: You see how I set up Cassidy with that answer because I knew where I was going next. (laughs) Paul, this was Jamie Dimon's annual essay. He and he just he put in Trumpy in all caps, hard work, hard work. Yeah, it's just hard
7: work. It's just in jarred. I mean, it's I can't remember a, a day when we had so many big banks reporting on one day. So what I think a lot of our listeners and investors are trying to do is try to take a step back and say, what can we take away about the U.S. and global banking business uh, from today's results?
6: it's really interesting that you bring that up because we are overwhelmed with bank results today and we will be tomorrow and when you step back for a moment and look at the bigger picture Our banking system is very strong. Our biggest banks are very strong. And they're taking market share away from the European banks who continue to struggle in the capital markets businesses. But what's also clear from today's results is the consumer banking business in the United States is very strong, which is supported by the strong consumer numbers we see, whether it's employment, wage gains, and that's now showing up in the banking results.
7: So, Gerard, one of the narratives that I think we hear a lot as we think about global banking um, is that the U.S. banks did a pretty good job post-crisis kind of right-sizing themselves to the new world, the new regulatory world, the new return outlook, whereas perhaps the Europeans really haven't been as aggressive. Is that a fair assessment?
6: That's a very fair assessment, but I wouldn't put it all on the shoulders that the banks did it themselves. They were forced to do it by the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve put a gun to these banks' heads back in 09 and 10 and forced them to raise capital at distressed prices. But by doing that, it enabled them to write off the problems that they ran into, and they turned around much quicker. That did not happen over in Europe, and that is the huge difference between the two banking systems.
0: Did you read in the, you know, I mean, everybody's managing the message. Folks, you know, we make jokes about it, but Paul and I know Gerard Cassidy can read one of these press releases in about six seconds. Is there any talk in there about right-sizing, layoffs, all the other happy jargon that's about firing people?
6: Tom, I haven't seen any of that. In fact, we brought up. We've brought up on the call with J.P. Morgan, I asked Jamie Dimon about technology investing, how important it is for the capital markets business and markets. And they are investing very heavily. So the one area that you could see headcount reduction, you know, the trading desk, you and I both know, you go to the New York Stock Exchange today, and it's a museum, basically. There aren't any many people there because technology has taken over. So we've seen it. in terms of across the board, headcount reductions, we haven't heard that at all.
0: It's the second time I've heard that this week. Somebody said earlier this week Bloomberg surveillance was like a museum.
7: (laughs) (laughs) No, New York Stock Exchange, not not, not, not your argument. (laughs) So, so Gerard, I mean, is it simply – what are the banks kind of telling investors now about, you know, the next two to three years? We hear a lot of talk just about it is just slower growth. we got the IMF taking down GDP uh, numbers today. Um, Are they kind of telling the investors – top-line growth going forward is going to be less than maybe what it's been over the last several years?
6: They really haven't said that that specifically. You know, They're, they're somewhat reluctant to give out that type of guidance over a long period of time. But clearly, what we're seeing is that as the economy slows Banks are intertwined. I often say banks are products of the economy. And so, if the economy is going to slow in growth, in, invariably that will lead to slower revenue growth for the banks. Now, we did see this quarter that net interest margin pressure that we've talked about in the past. Uh, some banks were able to offset that with better growth in the capital markets businesses and also origination volumes, particularly yeah. in residential mortgage and auto, for some yeah. of the banks were strong.
0: Jared, give me one small, small bank we can talk about.
6: Um, we, we continue to come back. Uh, I think the last time we chatted, Tom, about the S-1 Bancorp, SBBX, Sam, Bill, Bill, Xavier. Okay. Uh, they, they continue to do a very good job. And it's interesting you bring that up because this country, we have more banks than any other, world, any other country in the world. And the small banks have a role. They're not going to get, in our view, we don't think they go out of business. They need to have a niche. And if you have a niche, a niche. I think you, you, you can survive.
0: Sure, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Always.